Welcome back to the Hindsight Podcast, a production by the Army Foundry Platform at Fort Liberty, North Carolina. I am your host, Vu Tran, and today you are listening to Line of Effort 2, The Great Game, interviews addressing the strategic and geostrategic ideas that influence intelligence analysis. This is part two of our interview with Dr. Zachary Davis, Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Security Research at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. The last episode ended on a discussion of the breakdown in nuclear arms control in the face of a host of factors to include the N-body problem and an explosion of multi-domain complexity. This episode picks right up where we left off in the conversation as we shift towards looking at the Cold War history of nuclear arms control in order to think through potential courses of action going forward. With that said, let's continue the interview. I think at this point, it'd be interesting to ask what your take on it, on this problem is from a historical perspective. So my, my reading of the history has always been the main reason we were able to get the Soviet Union and later on after the, the fall, the, the Russians to come to the table to limit nuclear arms was that implicitly the U.S. from like a dime perspective and mostly an economic perspective could just out-research, out-develop, and out-build and maintain a more effective nuclear triad than the Soviet Union's initially and then the Russians later on could. So the power parity was so tilted towards us that we could have the room to say, we're willing to be vulnerable and take the first step. As you see all these multitudes of players rise in this new renaissance, do you see the potential future solution, something like that too? So until the United States is able, or maybe the United States plus its allies is able to regain that, let's go with power superiority, like the ability to out-research and out-build and maintain nuclear weapons capabilities versus all the other potential competitors, we won't get to a point where we could feasibly talk about limits or even partial disarmament. I think it's instructive to, to look at the history, as, as you say. And, uh, you know, where did this notion that we had achieved some kind of stability in the Cold War come from? So that competition was hot and heavy for a while, right? With both countries building everything they could think of as fast as they could and getting it in the field. One turning point in the way that the countries are thinking about it came with the Cuban Missile Crisis. When you know, it was a clear to everyone on both sides, like, oh, fuck, that could have been everything, right? That could have ended it all for all of us. And the lessons were apparent to everyone at the time. Like, oh, man, we got to find a way. We got to get a little more serious about finding ways to make sure that we can talk to each other. So, you know, hotlines, communication, signaling. So there have been a number of nuclear near misses that sort of sobered the leadership in both countries. And we can go through a long history of them, but that's really where arms control came from, which is, you know, we should talk about this. You're going to do what you're going to do, and we're going to do what we're going to do, but we should at least be on the same page. So that's Reagan and, and Gorbachev, you know, all of these. Helsinki summits with everyone kind of on the same page in Washington and Moscow that whatever other games we play and whatever, you know, however the competition unfolds, that you just don't want to take it to that level. And you got to find ways to, to stop that from happening. Well, then fast forward and we had this very successful period of arms control. And not it wasn't so much that the counting, you know, stopped the unconstrained growth of the arsenals because the arsenals grew like crazy, right? We got the 30,000 weapons, but that we had this ongoing discussion with the Soviets and we knew that. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, what did we do? We reached out to them um, with cooperative threat reduction programs saying, hey man, you guys are in a pickle. 
it's not good for you. It's not good for us. You know, what can we do? Uh, and so that gave in a, you know, in retrospect, what, you know, you'd have to say there was a bit of a false sense of security in that we had handled the nuclear problem, that the Cold War was the reason and then we got through the Cold War and then, you know, the United States won the Cold War and we were triumphant and we came to the assistance of now the Russians and helped them secure their nuclear weapons. And then we went into that post-Cold War era where people just didn't think about it. Now, some did, but in the United States, you know, um, academics, it wasn't something that was in journals. People weren't writing about it. There were no podcasts. The military in particular, I mean, I used to teach at the Naval Postgraduate School and nobody wanted to talk about nuclear weapons. I mean, that was a, you know, and you saw what happened in STRATCOM. There were a bunch of major mistakes. They lost some weapons and sent them to the wrong places. And there was cheating scandals and you know, that's not a, like a, a, a hot career path, right, to, to be, you know, in a nuclear silo. So the whole nuclear enterprise, and I would say the labs got defunded and Congress told the nuclear laboratories, that is Los Alamos, Livermore, and Sandia, no, 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 you, you know what, we're going to cut your funding and we should start thinking about making you guys into green labs. You know, nuclear weapons were were out of fashion for about 20 years, and we were really caught behind the eight ball. And so it's now picked up, right? And thanks really to Putin and Xi, it's really back in vogue. And we're making up for some lost time. But to answer your question, you know, about the new era of strategic competition and the complexity that goes along with it, it really comes up to your risk tolerance. What do we need what is the arsenal and strategy that we need? And, you know, the Biden administration came out with their nuclear posture review and they were sort of had one foot on the dock and one in the boat. They wanted to do the Obama disarmament prog thing. And a bunch of people in the liberal wing of the Democratic Party were still in the disarmament, arms control. You know, we don't need nuclear weapons. We don't need any more of them. We need to reduce our arsenal. And then another camp within the Democratic Party saying, are you nuts? Have you seen what's going on in the world? Do you think that makes us safer? And uh, you can tell which side I'm on. And so at the laboratories and around the National Nuclear Security Administration, there was in the Pentagon, a sort of revival of nuclear thought, like what is the problem and what do we got to do to deal with it? And that's where we're at. So there's a general consensus that we need to modernize the arsenal in some way. There's less agreement on Things like LRSO, the you know long-range standoff weapons, and what we need to deal with the problem and how it integrates with these other domains. That's our problem that we're focused on now. I, I would say it's a good time for people to get into this field. I noticed the FA-52s, are they went through a kind of a hard time because people didn't want to hear about nuclear stuff, and they were all about EOD and nuclear terrorism. But now fighting on a nuclear battlefield is a real thing now, and it could happen. And the risk of the army fighting on the nuclear battlefield is much elevated. And I think people realize that. And we got to get serious about it. And there are going to be nuclear weapons on the battlefield. And there are going to be foreign nuclear weapons around the world. And we got to be smart about that. And we got to understand it. And we got to be prepared for it. So what level of risk? If you don't think it's going to happen, you're not going to do much to deal with it. If you take the threat seriously, then you're going to have to do something. Right. And that means in terms of deterrence, but it also means in terms of battlefield preparations, 
and knowledge of the force. And that gets to what you're doing, which I think is a tremendous service because people have got to have a situational awareness. This is not a theoretical thing anymore. This is real. And Putin is deadly serious about the things he says. And they are capable in ways that we haven't really taken seriously for a long time. I think it's an exciting time because people are trying to answer your question. Um, we're not resolved as to, you know, kind of what level of risk we're willing to accept. There's a general consensus that we need to modernize and keep pace, both in terms of the delivery systems that the Defense Department owns and operates and the weapons that we in the nuclear enterprise provide to them as, as our primary customer. So STRATCOM is sort of in a revival period. And that's really good to see. And we're in a sort of an integration phase. People are realizing that the stovepipes of excellence, you can't stay in your nuke world because the cyber people are just as important to solving this problem. And now the space people are just as important. We can't solve the multi-domain problem without more integration amongst our own forces. It's a good time in the sense that we need people to focus on the problem. It's unprecedented. The competition is not dying down anytime soon. The China threat is, I mean, we're still trying to get our arms around it at this point, right? I mean, how big are they? How does deterrence work? Because we've never really embraced deterrence with China. And now we're trying to define what that is. Again, it goes back to your point of risk tolerance. How much are, are we willing to tolerate? We could probably roll the dice, not do that much, use the old arsenal and wave it around and you might get by with that. But I think a lot of people in my field are of the point of view that it's time for us to take this stuff seriously. You know, I, I hate to put it as a resource issue because it so often comes down to that. You're going to pay for it. Even in the, uh, military education, right? It comes down to, is TRADOC going to pay for a class in nukes? No, they're not. I'm not teaching right now because <laughs> no one wants to pay for a class in, along the lines of the things that we're talking about. But if we need to, um, and a lot of parts of the government, I think DITRA is really taking this seriously and, and moving out swiftly, and the different domain managers are moving out. So STRATCOM, I say, is having a renaissance. I think the FA-52s in the Army are really cranking right now. Um, that's a good thing. We've reestablished the laboratory's relationship with the 52s so that 52s can cycle through the labs and get hands-on experience with the weapons. That's important. There's a lot of good things going on. There's two directions I want to take this for sure. I want to explore the space piece of this and the command and control and the, and the nuclear weapon strategies tied with that. And then the other part I'd like to talk about is just a thought experiment, if, if you're willing to entertain it, which is, let's say a nuclear weapon, because a lot of the ForceCon folks are going to be working at you know, division and below. So let's say uh, a nuclear weapon does go off, right? How does that immediately affect their operating environment? I would imagine there's some sort of electromagnetic pulse that might fry their comps. Their environment would be irradiated. But I think there's also a lot of variability, right, between a fission, a fusion, a, and a neutron bomb that's going to really, for the commander and the intel analyst, that's going to make very different courses of action that are pertinent to them. So, so can you? Kind of walk us through that uh, worst case scenario because we, we'd still be effect we'd still be expected to somehow claw victory out of the 
the jaws of irradiated defeat. I know a lot of times like the war games will end with a nuclear explosion and then yeah. everybody just goes home. But it, yeah. in real life, you'd still be expected to figure out how to win after a nuclear weapon has been used. So what, what is that operating environment actually going to look like? So that fits perfectly with what I was going on about, which is one of the things that's coming back into vogue is a wargaming in a serious way, multi-domain and not stopping when the weapon goes off, because that's not reality. And you would have to fight through. We will have to fight through. And that leads to the other part of your question of multi-domain effects. One of the things that is coming up in the wargaming, and then the other thing that is getting a lot more attention now, rightfully, is modeling and simulation of nuclear effects. What would happen if? So that's, that's your question, right? What would happen if? So modeling and simulating the effects, which used to be a thing back in the day, there was an agency that got rolled into DITRA, but it was called the DNA, uh, you know, Defense Nuclear Agency. And that was their whole mission was nuclear effects. What would happen? And they used to do these things out on the Nevada desert. And you've seen those old clips, the old films of actual nuclear weapons being tested above ground to see what would happen to cities and towns and people and cows. And so that's coming back in the new environment because of we don't have the answers, right? And it's hard to plan if you don't, you know, have these answers. We used to take this issue of EMP, electromagnetic pulse, seriously. And there were actually, uh, you know, many nuclear weapons tests back in the day when we used to test nuclear weapons, uh, which, we, you know, we stopped doing in, in 1990. But many of the, the tests that were done were intended to look at these effect and what they did to electronics and to your operating equipment and to your communications. And now, because the space domain where all of our comms are concentrated is highly vulnerable to these kinds of effects. And so there was back in the Cold War era, more thought given to nuclear effects in space. What would happen if? And now that we have become so wholly dependent, on space. And it's not just for the military and everything military, but everything commercial to the point where Elon Musk has his own foreign policy and turns on and off Starlink according to whether he had a good day or not. And so that just is an illustration of how vulnerable we all are to the space domain, but it's very easy and it raises really serious questions about deterrence when you're talking about EMP or small nuclear explosions in space that fry your space architecture. It's indiscriminate, but space is big, and you could probably pinpoint these effects. And there's a lot of research going into different kinds of effects that might be generated. So you're absolutely right that nuclear weapons are being thought about in new ways. There are some precedent you know, back in the Cold War that people thought, oh, my God, maybe we could do this or that. But that really died off. And we don't test nuclear weapons in that way anymore. But it's back um, big time. And the vulnerability of the space assets and including the NC3, Nuclear Command and Control and Communication Systems, to this type of exotic EMP, which could be generated with a weapon in space, not that difficult. You just got lofted out there and we just saw North Korea do it. Any country can get to space and many, many companies even can get to space. So space is increasingly accessible and our national security assets are increasingly vulnerable. 
And so, you know, taking an old fashioned nuclear weapon and using it in a new way is an avenue that is not lost on some of the current competitors. This is being thought about. <laughs> That's such a crazy example because it really complicates the set of options we'd have to respond to it because there would it would likely not kill anybody. Uh, it would just be an explosion that sends an electromagnetic pulse that fries our satellite systems. I don't even think we have a game plan for how we'd want to respond to that sort of provocation. Um, exactly. But, you wouldn't, you know, and it's, it's deterrence doesn't work. Retaliation doesn't work. It, did you cross the nuclear threshold if nobody got killed? Yeah. And we don't really have a declared policy, right? So the U.S. doesn't have a, we don't have a no first strike policy and I don't think we have a launch on warning policy, but de facto that it is that our, that is our policy is is what I'm tracking. Yeah, these declared doctrines have a sort of limited value. They have some diplomatic value, and some people I know, especially in the disarmament community, they really put a high value on statements like that. So you know, when China says we have no first use policy, somehow you know some people would take that. To have some real value. But when you're looking at an adversary and their intentions, these kinds of words have real limited weight. And then just to tie back that space piece, there's really no way to have a viable launch on warning strategy if you don't have a robust space capability, right? Because that's where all the sensors you'd be using to detect, you know, one or two indicators of a potential adversary launch. That, that's where all those command and control source of sensors are, are floating around. Okay. Yeah. For the audience, yeah. Zach is sh shaking his head up and down. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and then in terms of command control, is it largely the same? So every nuclear power, every aspiring nuclear power has the same sort of command control architecture, or, or is there like a drastically different flavor across the different players? Like most things, every country goes about these problems in their own way. They solve the command and control issue, um, you know, we're, we're technology heavy. Other countries are more people oriented, which is more reliable. So who has their finger on the button, right? Who has the ultimate authority? And in our system, you know, there's really no question. It's the president. And there are elaborate systems, of checks and balances and technologies. We've got a very sophisticated secure system for making sure that there's no unauthorized access to the nuclear command and control system or to nuclear weapons. But we do worry about that in other countries, and especially for countries that are in the development phase that haven't maybe integrated such elaborate safety, security, and use control mechanisms, either technologically into their systems or uh, into their command structure. And every country is different, right? So you worry about some. And then the question that always comes up, and particularly when we're talking about the sea domain, right? We're talking about submarines with nuclear weapons. So this command and control of nuclear weapons at sea is a particular kind of problem. You know, you can sort of solve it through technology, but a lot of times it comes down to personnel reliability. And so there are, you know, some of your audience probably have been involved in these personnel reliability programs or human reliability, HRP or PRP programs. And different countries do this differently. You know, we'd like to talk to more countries about that, how they do personnel reliability in uh, nuclear operations, because it comes down to people. And you can have locks and keys and switches and fusing and firing and arming 
mechanisms. There's lots of blocks that you can put in the process to make sure that there's no unauthorized use or access. But at the end of the day, right, you know, a lot of it comes down to people and their intentions. And quite often there are workarounds and that we worry about that um, a lot. And that's one of the reasons why the nukes at sea merits special attention, because it's hard to communicate with commanders at sea. And you also find this with tactical nuclear weapons during a battle. They're forward deployed nuclear weapons on a battlefield and you've got the fog of war and munitions going off and a lot of confusion. There's a question of whether the commanders in the field have pre-delegated authority to resort to nuclear weapons if they're under attack and they assess the situation to be to require their use. You know, we in the United States have not ever condoned pre-delegation. You know, it was in the Eisenhower administration where that issue really came to fore and it was a big discussion. Well, what sort of authority do you grant commanders over the use of weapons, especially tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield, right? There's a battlefield decision. No, it's a strategic decision. You're going to cross the nuclear threshold. The president has that authority and only the president can decide whether or not you're going to use nuclear weapons. So pre-delegation is a big issue, but it gets into the whole very interesting discussion of strategic culture and different systems of government where maybe an autarkic, you know, an autocratic leader maintains control, like these are my weapons and no one touches them, or whether you've got a, an unreliable political system that can break down and fracture and the command and structure where you've got divisions within the army, for example, or divisions, you know, within one of the services that possesses nuclear weapons. And then you get into a sort of Dr. Strangelove type situation where you've got rogue commanders with nuclear weapons and the ability to use them in ways that may be off script. So that is, it's a worry with the growth of nuclear weapons and their reintroduction, their increasing popularity. And that means that you're going to have more people, more materials, more weapons, more training, more logistics, more transportation, more of everything. And with more of everything comes risk. And that gets back to the point we were discussing earlier, which is how much risk do we tolerate? And when you're talking about deterrence, right? So we can live with deterrence, right? We, that's, we believe in it. And we want the Russians to be deterred and feel like there's a stable deterrence relationship there. We're not going to attack them a bolt from the blue and try and take over Russia. Now we have to have that discussion with, with China, like we have a stable deterrent situation, you know, with North Korea, with India and Pakistan, you know, we don't worry about the Brits and we don't worry about the French, but we trust that they have everything under control and proper order. But the more countries that get them and the more people that get involved, the more complexity you have, the more missions that you have for the weapons, you know, like we started talking about tactical, um, but even in strategic and how well trained are the people and how reliable is your technology and do you have permission action links in the, the system to prevent unauthorized, all these things are going to just be increasingly relevant. So on this, I think our conversation so far has really talked about nation states and their ability to create enough visible material to create a weapon. I was doing some research uh, on the uranium and plutonium enrichment part, and it's looking like we're entering a, a stage where there, there is a third technology that's being developed um, apart from 
kind of the older method of enriching uranium and then getting plutonium. Does that factor into your thinking, you know, as newer technologies and perhaps less detectable ways of enriching physical material arrive on, on the scene? Is that going to further complicate this problem or is that just, you know, a 50 years from now, a technological development, so we got plenty of time to worry? So far, there hasn't been a breakthrough on the enrichment or reprocessing front. It still takes, I mean, and that's one of the reasons for feeling somewhat confident that we can manage the situation because it all does come down to the material. It all comes down to highly enriched uranium and plutonium, and they're hard to get, right? So that nuclear terrorism question, which we really took seriously after 9-11, and it turned out that Al-Qaeda was, in fact, interested and did have a little research program and was reaching out to Pakistan, seeing if they could get access. And so it's a problem that we've taken seriously, but it has turned out that you still got to have the materials and there's just no shortcuts. Now, people have looked at what it would take to do a sort of monster garage, backyard enrichment or reprocessing, and it's hard. Right, it's hard to get enough material to do to produce yield. It's why terrorists tend to resort to the radiological options, like I'll just get a bunch of nasty, you know, cobalt or strontium night or something that I can get from a hospital and explode it with, uh, you know, with some TNT, spread it around, scare the hell out of everybody. You know, it'll certainly have tremendous economic consequences, but. Uh, for now, the thinking is that you still have to have an industrial scale enrichment or reprocessing capacity. And it's hard to do. And of course, plutonium comes from spent reactor fuel. You could probably do this on a kind of shop scale, but you, it would take you a long time to get enough. And then you're still talking about you know, whether you can fashion it into a device and then what you would do with that, right? Um, so for now, I think no disturbing breakthrough, like, you know, there are a few things that are on the horizon that look ominous, right? That they're going to change things. We're going to have to contend with it, like quantum, right? Like quantum computing. But right now, um, I'm not aware of any radical breakthroughs, enrichment or reprocessing that would make it easier for groups or individuals to acquire fissionable materials. Before we continue the interview, let's take a moment to look at one of these ominous technologies. In terms of enrichment, there are two processes for making weapons-grade nuclear material, and those are gaseous diffusion, also known as first generation, and centrifuges, also known as second generation technology. Gaseous diffusion is no longer in use due to the massive amounts of electricity and space required to build and maintain these facilities. The method is considered obsolete, so enrichment via centrifuge is the dominant method. There is a, quote, third generation of enrichment technology in development called laser isotope separation. The technology has been in research and development since the 1970s, and to date, working prototypes have been developed and proof of concepts built. But it is still very much in an R&D phase. The challenge that something like laser isotope separation presents to any future arms control attempt is that it allows enrichment to occur in much smaller and presumably harder to detect sites. Since you theoretically do not have to locate your enrichment activity at an industrial site if you use this method. 
Given the much smaller footprint, both visually and most likely in the electromagnetic spectrum, this presents a monitoring challenge for any would-be party in a counterproliferation framework or agreement. So like Dr. Davis said, for now, no disturbing breakthroughs, but it is important to be aware that these technological developments progress by the day. And it should be a sobering reminder of how quickly things can change in the nuclear domain. Now back to the interview. So uh, I, I do have one last question, and it, it's more of like a nuclear theory sort of question, which is, let's imagine we have player A, player B, and player C. A doesn't like B, and A doesn't like C. B and C have a frenemy, love-hate relationship. Uh, yeah. And then A, B, and C also have their own alliance network of of friends and maybe some of those yeah. friends have nuclear weapons too uh right so so how did how is the thinking of the community evolving on in that context like would a have to in any scenario where a would use its nuclear weapons have to hit b c and all of b and c's allies because it is an iterative game so there is a day after the nuclear exchange despite that's, you know armageddon and kind of how popular media portrays it that's right so in that sort of calculation, is it really much safer for a country, you know, DEFG to actually have nuclear weapons and be targets in this exchange? Or, you know, like would A, like I don't imagine A just hitting B, right? A would have to hit B, C, and anybody else A thinks uh, might be a threat after B and C have launched nukes at A and you you've essentially hurt all, you know, A, B, and C are now all hurting their biggest enemies. D waiting in the wings to to be the new hegemon, uh, you know how how is that sort of problem being addressed by the community of people thinking about this? Yeah, a couple of things going on there. So what you described is is reality, right? And you've got one of these triads in South Asia with China, India, and Pakistan. China being roughly allied with Pakistan, both nuclear states. India, a rising power in a strategic competition with China as a peer rival, and India being you know, fully convinced that China directs Pakistan's nuclear decision-making. And so it is very much that kind of a situation when you think about the United States, you know, at least trying to develop a relationship with India and India maintaining relationships with a number of other nuclear powers. So, I mean, what you described is simply the world that we're living in now. And as I was saying, that the classic theories of the Cold War, the Schelling and Herman Kahn and Bernard Brody and, you know, all the great theorists just didn't get into this. <laughs> and so we kind of got to start for, from here. And what's happening mainly is that there's kind of a new era in wargaming that, that is getting underway. And it's, it's quite interesting. And they're trying to use a lot of data analysis, right? So they're trying to integrate more quantitative methods into wargame to try and deal with the complexity that you're describing. Um, nobody knows how this works. And these problems of international relations, like, you know, between A, B, and C and their allies, right? And, and when called upon, you know, do the allies, do they balance or do they bandwagon or do they bail out? Or what does the new world look like? It used to be easier to understand, and the nuclear world order was more comprehensible because it was more structured and more stable. And in fact, we lived in a post-World War II world order 
that was defined by the treaties that we discussed, the norms and the rules and the relationships that were understood, and doctrines that were more or less clear, and people kind of understood the rules of the road. And that world order, you know, was defined by the Cold War alliances and by an economic system that most countries saw as beneficial to their own interests. And the rules of the the world and the United Nations and the Dumbarton Oaks and the, you know, the whole structure and institutionalization of the world order. And many people were thinking that this was a sign of progress, that the more that democracies took hold and the more countries subscribed to a democratic free market system, this was the triumphalism that you heard after the Cold War, that now that Russia's gone, this world order that we've created is going to be instantiated even further, that democracies don't fight each other, and that the growth of free markets and democracies You know, you saw this very famous article by Francis Fukuyama, the end of history. It was the end of history. You don't have to guess. Like the question you just asked about A, B, and C and how they're going to relate, don't have to ask that anymore. It's all becoming clear. The end of history, because we've got it figured that democracy and free markets, and it was the theory, it was called the democratic peace theory, right? Democracy is one. And a lot of people saw that the nuclear issues were equally defined and resolved during this period in the same way that, you know, you got rid of nuclear weapons in Ukraine and Belarus and Kazakhstan. You've got rid of nuclear weapons in South Africa. And, you you know, for a while, it looked like you were getting rid of nuclear weapons in North Korea and you got rid of nuclear weapons in Iraq and you got rid of nuclear weapons in Libya and you got rid of nuclear weapons in Argentina and Brazil And you got rid of, you know, so it looked like these rules that the non-proliferation regime and arms control, it all for a minute looked like you could answer your question for a minute. And then this happened. And that world order on which all of these arms control and, and alliances, everything was built around a world order that is now in chaos and collapse and being reshuffled. And that's really what's at stake is can we keep this thing together? Because if it all falls apart and, you know, it looks like that's what's happening, we're clinging to our alliances and hoping that our alliances hold and that those of us who want to go along with this idea of democratic peace and free market democracies, you know, can keep going. But Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and a bunch of other countries are happy to see the old order, which they see, you know, is colonialism and exploitative and patriarchal. And this needs to be destroyed, right? This old order that the damn Americans set up to exploit the rest of the world and put in a new era of, of colonialism is now finally getting its due and it's falling apart. When that falls apart, all this other nuclear world order that was sort of built in and around it goes with it. And what you're describing, the nth body problem essentially, is intimately tied up in this question of the world order and whether it can retain some sort of identifiable features or whether we're in la-la land, right? And the whole thing gets reshuffled and China comes out on top and Russia is a vassal state of China, whether our allies stick with us or they decide that they got to go their own way or make a a deal with some other powers. Um, The Middle East is on fire. There's 
the rise of these autocratic leaders. We don't know which way Turkey, a key alliance partner, is going to go. We don't know which way India is going. They certainly not joining us in the prosecution of this democratic ideals. And they're not interested in that. And they're not going to help us fight, you know, against the Russians. So it's all up in the air. And the nuclear issues will be decided by the security architecture that results from these tectonic changes that are underway right now. This concludes part two of our interview with Dr. Zachary Davis from Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Please note the views expressed in this episode are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, the Center for Global Security Research at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, or the Army Foundry platform. Attached to the show notes is the transcript for this episode. We've also included a link to Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory's website where you can read the latest in research on these topics. If you have questions, comments, and most importantly, suggestions for topics we should cover in future episodes, drop us an email at hindsight.podcast.afp at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Vu Tran, signing off from Fort Liberty, North Carolina.